how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture describes this through various phrases, abiding in Christ, walking in the truth, walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, and that we're in right relationship with the Lord, then God the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives, and that is the process of our spiritual growth. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. The way to begin recovery is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. Instantly, we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's so wonderful that we can come together and just to reflect upon you and think about your works in history and how they manifest your your person, your power, your glory, and that as we study these events in the Old Testament, that as Paul pointed out in 1 Timothy 2, these are revealed and preserved for our spiritual edification, our spiritual growth, that these events might provide us examples so where we can uh, learn how you how you relate to human history, how you control human history, despite what appears to us to be setbacks and failures, and that you are always in control, uh, even when we're in the midst of disaster or in the midst of divine discipline. Nevertheless, you are still in control. Father, help us to realize that as we look at the world around us, which so often seems to be in chaos and spinning out of control, that you are still in control, and that we are to trust you. We're to continue to walk consistently with you and that you are the one who's working out your plan and purposes in human history. Now, Father, we pray that you would just encourage us and strengthen us from your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We should finish tonight. We started the Battle of Aphek last week, which we covered about the first four verses of the chapter. So tonight we should make a little more progress and at least get through this chapter. And this is really the prelude to what I think is one of the most amusing, funny, ironic, sarcastic uh, sections of Scripture when we get into chapter 5. What we learn from this is God is perfectly capable to take care of his, himself and he's perfectly capable to uh, handle the, the conflicts that come in, in history and in people's lives but he's not going to be used by people to uh, fit their agenda. He's not going to operate like uh, we sometimes treat him, like he's a good luck charm, that if we just make sure we go to church or we do certain things right, that somehow God's going to bless us because God has a better understanding of all the dynamics of a situation. He's omniscient, and so we can't pull the wool over his eyes, which is what Israel was basically trying to do. So in this section we see how God takes care of his own glory and that that glory is going to end up going in exile by the end of the chapter. Now just a reminder because so often what happens when people get into the word they sort of chop it up into these these segments or individual blocks and we don't always see the whole pattern. And these opening chapters in 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 uh, 1 Samuel up through about chapter 8, take place in the period that's known as the time of the Judges, which is covered by the book of the Judges. But the book of the Judges, even though those key, many of those key leaders, uh, Deborah, Barak, Jephthah, uh, Gideon, uh, Samson, are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, that doesn't mean that everything they did what was right. In fact, they were 
progressively, as we've studied, they get progressively worse because that's the whole trend of Judges. In Judges 17.6 and in Judges 21.25, the theme of Judges is stated that there was no king in Israel in those days and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's moral relativism. And the whole culture is just uh, increasingly pagan. At the beginning of the book of Judges, they're acting... uh, in obedience to the Lord, by the end of the book of Judges, their 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 behavior is not distinguishable from the Canaanites at all. And so this is the period that we're talking about. What we learn here is that Eli is a, a judge, even though he's not mentioned in the book of Judges. He's a judge. Samuel will become a judge. They're the last two judges. Eli demonstrates that even as a high priest and a judge, he is totally corrupt. He has apostatized. The faith, and that word apostasy means to depart uh, from the, from the truth, to depart from the faith, and that he's departed from the faith, and his sons are just as corrupt and abusive as they can possibly be, and this is why God is bringing judgment on Israel before He can turn things around. I've pointed out that the broad outline in these first seven chapters is that Yahweh is preparing to deliver Israel by a great change. They have been mired for uh, a couple of generations in apostasy and in oppression from the Philistines. The last judge mentioned in the book of the Judges is Samson, about whom nothing good is said. The only time Samson really obeys God is right there at the end, which is when he has been blinded and he prays that God would restore his strength so that he can uh, tear down and destroy the temple uh, of Dagon which is interesting background because the focal point in chapter 5 is going to be on another temple uh, of Dagon. But but Samson, as we've seen, life overlaps that of Samuel. So the point that I've been making in this chapter is that Yahweh causes Israel to be defeated and they would say, well, why has God deserted us? He, he, He defeated us. We brought the ark. Uh, into combat. God should have given us victory as he did in the days of Joshua and in in, uh, battles uh, before, but now uh, he allowed them to be defeated. The ark is captured, and but what God is showing is that he's the one who's really in charge. He's not going to march to the tune of men, but he is going to set forth his own agenda, and he demonstrates his sovereignty over Israel, his sovereignty over the gods of their enemies, and his control of the situation. But before he can bring about this change, he's got to clean out the corruption that has entered into uh, into Israel. And so this is what happens as part of that cleansing of the corruption. We looked at it last time. This is when uh, the Philistines come up from the south. They gather at a place called Aphek. Uh, the Jews, the Israelites, gather at uh, Ebenezer. And so this is referred to as the Battle of Aphek or the Battle of Aphek-Ebenezer. I've put this chart up on the board several times, had people ask me to put it up again. Uh, this shows the overlap of Jephthah at the top, Samson and Samuel, how their lives overlap, which you don't pick up just from reading through uh, the book of Judges. Samuel and Samson live roughly at the same time, and Samson's death is probably just a short time before this. Uh, the fact that he's caused so much trouble with the Philistines, as I've pointed out in the past, may be the reason the Philistines are moving their military up to Aphek, and they're preparing to invade into the territory, uh, the territory of Israel. Uh, Two major battles we're going to see the first seven chapters uh, revolve around. The first is the Battle of Aphek, which is a massive defeat for Israel, and then the Battle of Mizpah that is described in 1 Samuel chapter 7, which is their uh, their victory. This is a map to orient you to the geography of the situation. Jerusalem is down here to the lower right, and that is uh, just about uh, 20 miles or so uh, south of Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is located, where the Ark of the Covenant is located at the tabernacle. 
and that's about 20 miles or a little less from, from uh, the battle scene at, uh, at AFEC. So that orients us to this northern area. But what happens at the end of the Battle of Aphek is the Ark is captured by the Philistines, and they take the Ark down here to Ashdod, and they set the Ark in a temple of Dagon, in the pagan temple of Dagon. And that's the focus of what happens in the rest of this chapter and into uh, chapter 5. So the first part of the battle we studied last time, 4,000 men are killed, and after that, the reaction of the Israelites is that, well, we, we didn't have God with us. We need to go get the ark. The focus is on that which is associated with God, the ark of the covenant, not God. They're not right with God. They have not... Uh, dedicated the battle to the Lord. They have not gone to the Lord in repentance and humility and prayer. And now they just want to use God that if we go get this, you know, our magic rabbit's foot, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring that into battle, then God's going to give us victory. And that's how so many people think about God. They think that they can just use God for their immediate needs, and then as soon as everything sort of stabilizes in their life, then they forget about God, and they're no longer reading the Word, studying the Word, being involved in uh, their own personal spiritual growth. I use this map to show a little bit about the orientation of the battle. Uh, the black line represents the movement of, the, of Israel to the Battle of Aphek, and then the uh, dotted lines slash lines represent the movement of the Philistines. Now, this map shows what many scholars believed in the past, and that is that according to the archaeological finds at Shiloh back in the 20s, they believed that the destruction layer there indicated that the Philistines went on, exploited the victory, and destroyed Shiloh. However, as I'm going to point out in a little bit, Passages in Jeremiah indicate that Shiloh was probably not destroyed until sometime later. In fact, there's uh, uh, some prophets. There's at least one prophet who lives in Shiloh during the period of the kings, uh, of first, first or second kings. So here's the question that they raise, the issue they raise. They're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, and when it comes, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. It's not he, there's not a focus on God saving them, it is on the ark. They're just going to use that which is associated with God like a some sort of magic, uh, magic uh, uh, rabbit's foot. Now in verse 4, they t- describes going to Shiloh, getting the ark, and notice it continues to be named the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. This is the full title. Sometimes the Ark is called the Ark of the Testimony because the the tablets of the law were kept inside the Ark. The term Ark just refers to a box. It was a box made of acacia wood that was covered with pure gold, as I pointed out last time. That in and of itself is a picture of the deity and the humanity of Christ. All the, we've gone through extensive tabernacle studies. Everything in the tabernacle teaches us something about Jesus Christ. That's what's so great about studying the tabernacle. And the ark is focusing on the propitiatory work of Christ. That's a big word people don't use a lot today. It means satisfaction. And it focuses on the fact that the lid of the ark as we see a picture of the ark here, the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. That this covered, this, this lid that was pure gold, covered over the broken law that's inside the, the ark. So on, the, on, um, on Yom Kippur, anybody know when Yom Kippur begins? Right now. Tonight, Yom Kippur begins. It's a day of atonement. So every year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would take two goats. He would put his hands on the two goats, and he would recite the sins of Israel. One goat was then taken off into the wilderness and let go to indicate that God has forgiven those sins, and they've been completely removed, and they're not going to be brought up again. The, the, the goat would be taken. It's called the scapegoat was taken so far out into the wilderness that he couldn't find his way back. The other goat is sacrificed, and the blood of that goat was then placed on the mercy seat. 
so that the cherubs, the two angels that are there, uh, depict the holiness and the righteousness of God, that it's satisfied. It's the blood that covers the sin. Now, Exodus 25:22, as I pointed out last time, that this is where God would meet them. So it's intimately associated with the presence of God, why it is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. And that term, Lord of Hosts, emphasizes the, that there is a battle going on. It brings that to, to the foreground. Here's another picture of the Ark of the Covenant. So what we find is the reaction of the Philistines in verse 7. And they hear what is going on. They hear the sound of tumult, the sound of rejoicing. They, they're having a pep rally over in the Israeli or Israelite army, and they hear that, and then they know what, what this uh, means and what this is going to indicate for them. And they have a, it shows that they have a historical understanding of the working of God because they recognize that this is the God who gave, uh, who brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. This is the God who gave the Israelites victory uh, as they left Egypt and destroyed the army of the Egyptians. This is the God who gave them victory when they entered into the land, gave them victory at Jericho, gave them victory at Ai, gave them victory over the Canaanite kings in the north and in the south, and gave the land of Canaan uh, to the Israelites. So they immediately cry out that God has come into the camp. Now, I want you to watch this because they always refer to God as Elohim, which is translated into the text in English as God, G-O-D, Whereas when the writer is writing from the Jewish, from the Israelite perspective, he re- refers to God as Yahweh. So they cry out God or a God, one of the gods. They just treat the God of Israel as one of many gods. God has come into the camp and they cry out, Woe to us for such a thing has never happened. They don't have any faith. Uh, in God, but they recognize the historical evidence. That's like a lot of unbelievers. They recognize some historical value to Christianity and to the Bible, but they don't believe it. They don't really believe that it's true, and they treat it lightly. They don't submit to the authority of Scripture. So they cry out, verse 8, who, Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Notice they just treat God as, as a plurality even. These are the gods who struck with the Egyptians with the plagues in the wilderness. And then they have their own pep talk. And we, this is just their, their own little motivational seminar. They're going to give everybody uh, revved up on their own power and their own ability, and they'd say even though they believe they've got all this historical evidence that God is going to defeat them, that the God of Israel can defeat them, they think that if they just uh, man up, and that's that's basically a free translation here from the Hebrew, they're saying be strong and conduct yourselves like men, Philistines. Man up. You can do it. And you can beat the Hebrews. Don't become their servants. Don't let them defeat you. Uh, <clears throat> conduct yourselves like men and fight. So they get all revved up. They have their own pep rally overnight to get, get revved up to go into battle. And then they go into battle. Now look at verse, uh, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel is defeated. And every man fled to his tent. You find this phrase throughout um, the Old Testament whenever Israel is defeated, and it, and it exaggerates the significance of the battle that everyone goes home. Everybody just flees the battle. Everyone fled to his tent, and there was a very great, great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. So they lost 4,000 the first part of the battle. Then they went to get the ark, and now they lose 30,000. So they've lost 34,000. They've got 34,000 killed in action. But the tragedy is that the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, or Pinchas, die. So they are killed in the battle. Now remember, this was what was prophesied, in verse 
uh, chapter 2, verse 34, by the man of God who came to Eli and announced judgment on the house of Eli. God was, was shutting down the house of Eli because of their apostasy, because of their corruption. Remember, uh, his two sons were uh, using their position to intimidate and abuse people. They were forcing the women who came to the temple or who served, excuse me, the tabernacle or served at the tabernacle to function like temple prostitutes. They were forcing them into sexual acts. And so God is now bringing judgment. And Eli's been waiting for this probably for 10 years since it was first announced at the end of chapter 2 and then confirmed by uh, the word of the Lord to Samuel in chapter 3. In 1 Samuel 2.34, the unnamed prophet, the unnamed man of God told Eli, this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on, on Hophni and Pinchas. In one day they shall die, both of them. This is the announcement that their judge, that this judgment is coming true and this will be the end of the house of Eli. And so we see that this prophetic sign is fulfilled. Now, the, so the death of Hophni and Pinchas confirms the prophecy. Now here's something we need to remember. One of the, uh, signs that a prophet is a true prophet is that according to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, is that what he prophesies comes true. That And if he doesn't, then he's supposed to be executed in the death penalty because anyone who says this is the word of the Lord when it's not is guilty of great deception and God is not going to let his word be counterfeited. So there was a capital penalty assigned to anyone who claimed to be a prophet, and then their prophecy did not come true. So we have a, uh, a situation at the end of chapter 2 when you have this prophet come to Eli in privacy, and he tells Eli what God is going to do. But it's confirmed by someone else. There is the word of the Lord coming to Samuel in chapter 3, and giving Samuel the same message that he gives to Eli, and that confirms the message. And then there is an external objective verification as that's fulfilled. Now, the reason I point that out is because in the looseness of a lot of evangelical theology and language, we have people say, well, the Lord told me to do this, and the Lord told me to do that. And as we've studied so many times, the Lord only speaks through his word today. He doesn't speak apart from his word. Now, God the Holy Spirit may bring scripture to our mind, but God isn't going to give us direct uh, revelation like he did in the Old Testament or in the early generation, the first generation of the church. And one of the patterns that we see when God did give revelation was that it was if it was given in private, and we'll see this again and again in First Samuel, that whenever God spoke to someone in private, it's always confirmed through external uh, verification so that no one can just come along and say, well, God spoke to me and said that I should do this. The question then should be, well, how do we verify that? And that was all, that was what was clearly seen in the two tests for a prophet in, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy uh, 18. It had to be internally consistent. It had to be consistent with all previous revelation. It always had to come true. Uh, there was no dropped prophecies. You're not 98% true. I heard one man uh, giving a defense of uh, the continuation of the gift of prophecy uh, uh, several years ago, and he said, well, the New Testament gift doesn't function like the Old Testament gift. It only has to be true 60 or 70% of the time. Where do you get that from the Scripture? If the foundation of the New Testament church are apostles and prophets, and the foundation is only laid once, then those gifts are no longer on the scene. So what happens after the battle is a man of Benjamin. Now, why do you think he points out a man of, Be of Benjamin? You know, one of the things that we learn in Bible study methods, as we, uh, some of you have gone through, is to pay attention to the details. Many times I've had conversations with people, and they always seem to get around saying, what's interesting is you always get down into such detail. 
in the Scripture. Well, the details are important. If Jesus said every jot and tittle is going to be fulfilled, and those are just portions of letters, then the details are important. Why do you think there's an emphasis here on a man of Benjamin? What's the last thing that we've learned about the Benjamites in Scripture? They had a rough time at the end of the judges. That's right. They they were uh, in apostasy. They basically were at the center of a civil war where the other eleven tribes were against them, and uh, and God brought a great discipline upon them. So they don't come out of the book of Judges or the period of Judges with a very good spiritual reputation. It stinks. What's the next thing we're going to learn in the book of Samuel about about the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. Saul is going to be selected as the first king. So I don't think it is um, the just happenstance that there's this emphasis. He doesn't just say there's a messenger that came from the battle line, but it's a man from Benjamin who is bringing the bad news. And it just starts to get us thinking in terms of the flow of the book about the, the tribe of Benjamin again. It's, there's a little bit of foreshadowing there, but not a whole lot. Uh, the man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day, came to Shiloh. His clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head. Why is that? That is how uh, a, a Middle Easterner at, at this time and for much of the ancient world would indicate their grief and their sorrow and the fact that they, they were distressed. Uh, terribly distressed is they would tear their clothes and they would put dirt on their head and they would put on sackcloth and ashes. It's a visual symbol to to represent how they're feeling, their emotional state. And so he's he's got terrible news. This is the most tr- disastrous thing to happen to Israel in the ancient world, second only to the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., That's because the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. This is a major disaster. And so he comes, and uh, Eli is sitting out by the tabernacle on his seat waiting. He anticipates something. He's 98 years old, and he knows that that there, he knows about this prophecy, he knows that there's that God has said his two sons will be killed on the same day. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. He knows he's not going to live much longer. So I think he is very anxious about the news that's going to come that day, and that's why he's waiting. And he is frightened for the for the ark of God, which shows a, a, another aspect of his spirituality. But I think it basically is related to the fact that he knows something. He, he, he's had, got this premonition that something disastrous is going to take place. And uh, first of all, the messenger runs into the city, and he tells them what has happened, and they are crying out. They're wailing. They are in such distress. And so as this noise gets increases in volume, then Eli hears it, and he begins to ask, What's going on? Because as we have learned, Eli, as we learn in the next verse, Eli's eyes are so dim that he can barely see. And this is a reminder that Eli's spiritual condition is, it reflects the spiritual condition of the nation. They're in rebellion against God. They're in apostasy. They, as he is physically blind, they are spiritually blind. And so he can't see the light. Israel can't see the light. They're coming under God's judgment. And so all he can do is ask the question, what is going on? What is taking place? What is happening? And so as the uh, story unfolds, the writer builds this dramatic scene to this climax. What is going to happen when Eli hears the news? When Eli hears that not only are his sons dead, but the ark has been captured. What's going to be his reaction? Now, before we see that, I want to show you a couple of pictures. This is from uh, the Tell, that's the archaeological dig at, at Shiloh in uh, Israel. This is in the West Bank, and this is, gives you sort of a broad picture of the terrain here. You can see the hills in the background. looks a lot like the hill country of Texas. And as you notice, it's, the ground is not level. 
The ground is very uneven. There's hills, it's up and down, there's valleys, but there's a flat area down below, and you see in, in a little close-up here, you can see a white covered area on to the right, and then there's a darker uh, covering over here on the left. Both are places where the archaeologists are working, but this area is the only flat area around, and it is just a little bit larger than the dimensions of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was here at Shiloh for over 300 years. And as they've excavated here, they found a number of artifacts. Uh, they'll find just pottery shards and different things like that that would have been part of the ritual observance at the tabernacle for those 300 years. This was the site where all the Israelites were supposed to gather to worship the Lord at all the great feast days of Israel. This is where the tabernacle uh, was located. So Eli is sitting at the gate, at the entryway, and the terms that are used here indicate that that the, the tabernacle, which was originally just a tent and very mobile, had probably become a little more solid, a little more stable over the 300 years. It says that he's, that he's by the gate. Uh, we, instead of just curtains, they had uh, built more substantive pillars and posts and gates. But he is sitting outside the front gate to the tabernacle, and the man comes to him and says, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from the battle line today. And Eli says, well, tell me what happened. So the messenger says, and note what he says, first of all, Israel has fled from the Philistines. Now that's tragic news. They've been defeated. Second, he says, there's been a great slaughter by the Philistines. They have killed 30,000. He doesn't know the exact number, but we do. And then third, he says, also your two sons, Hophni and Pinchas, are dead. And so far, there's no reaction from Eli. He's heard that they're defeated, that they've been, there's been a massive slaughter, his two sons are dead, and then the last thing that he says is that the ark of God has been captured. The, and as soon as he hears that, and the writer makes sure we understood it's not for the first three things, it's for that last thing. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. That's it. His reaction is not caused by learning about the defeat, by the massive casualties, or by the death of his two sons. What kills Eli is when he hears about the fact that the ark of God has been taken. At that point, he loses his balance, falls off his seat, and uh, breaks his neck, and he dies. And then we're given an interesting, uh, an interesting analysis. And he had ju- uh, that that for the old man was old and heavy. Now the previous verse told us he was 98 years old. Now it's restated he's old, but he is heavy. Then we're told he had judged Israel for 40 years. So since he was 58, he had been a judge. So he was rather old by the time he started judging Israel, although he had been a priest uh, much, much earlier. Now what's interesting is the little play on words here for, for the word heavy. Now, this is what I think is so much fun and so much interesting when we get into uh, looking at the original languages of the, of the Scripture, looking at Hebrew and looking at Greek. But it's really fun. In, it was really fun in Judges, and it's really fun in, in First and Second Samuel because the writer, and it may be even be the same writer, we don't know, but the writer uses a lot of puns, uh, otherwise known as paranomasias, word plays. And in that day, when you didn't have boldface type or you didn't have italics, you didn't have underlining and all these other things that we use, you would bring points out, emphasize things by the way you said them, by the vocabulary, repetition of certain key words, uh, using puns, paranomasias, things like that, would bring out certain points. So the word here is kaved, which is the... uh, which is the word usually translated, uh, kavod is the word translated glory, but it means something in its root 
core meaning is something that is weighty. There was an idiom back in the 70s or 80s, somebody, something significant happened, people say, well, that's heavy. That's the idea here. It's something significant. It's something powerful. And so it referred to something that was weighty, literally, something that weighed. It was very heavy. So in that sense, it also applies to Eli because he's obese at this time. And also it's used figuratively for something that's significant, something that uh, is uh, important. And certainly Eli was, was heavy, literally, and he, figuratively, he's important. He's the high priest. He's the judge of Israel. So there's there's a layer of meaning here. Uh, he is also, also the word means oppressive, oppression. And he and his sons oppressed Israel religiously. They brought them into apostasy and the way the, the sons abused the people when they would bring sacrifice to the temple is they were under religious oppression from these apostate uh, boys. Uh, the, it also has the idea of being burdensome and something that is uh, honored or, or glorified. So as we look at this, uh, Eli had social and religious significance, so he is uh, important. He's uh, as well as physically heavy. Uh, the sons apostatized, and so they oppressed the people, and he condoned uh, their uh, lifestyle. He didn't discipline them. He didn't correct them. He tried to, but it was ineffective. Uh, and because of his sins and those of his sons, Israel was under spiritual oppression. They were under a spiritual burden, uh, and so they were they needed to have this whole uh, apostate priesthood cleansed out. And so all of that is indicated in this play on words by using the word kaved. Now, that's not the last time we see it in this section, okay? So remember, it also has that idea of something that has glorified or has glory or is honored. We'll get back to it in just a minute. In verse 19, we're told of a second reaction. That is his daughter-in-law. And it's interesting that the way the writer emphasizes this says now his daughter-in-law doesn't say now the wife of Pinchas, his daughter-in-law. It's emphasizing his relationship to his, his daughter-in-law. It says his daughter-in-law, Pinchas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. So she is just about nine months pregnant. And she's about ready to have that child. And she hears the news that the ark of God is captured. And this is point to point out how devastating this is. She hears that the ark is captured, and immediately she goes into labor. And she is just having this, this convulsive reaction, and uh, she, she bends over, she squats down and gives birth because her labor pains had come upon her, and then she dies. And before she dies, though, she is going to uh, name her son. The women uh, around her, Tell her not to fear. She's given a son. She doesn't answer. I don't know whether she doesn't answer because she can't answer. I don't know if she doesn't answer because she's she's out of it, but she doesn't answer their question. But instead, she names the child, and she names the child Ichabod. That's where uh, Washington Gladden got the name Ichabod Crane. Okay, comes out of the Scripture. And there's a couple of names in Scripture. I'm not sure why anybody who read the Bible would ever name their children these names. One of them is Ichabod. Why would you name your child No Glory? And there's another one, and that is the nickname that Naomi gave herself after her husband and two sons died. And that is the name Mara, M-A-R-A, and it means bitter. I've known... I know of one um, uh, commentator on Fox News named Mara, and I know of a couple of other women who've been named Mara, and it's like, why in the world would parents name their children bitter? But that's that's what that meant. So this means, with probably it means without glory. The popular etymology, and I've pointed this out before when we've studied names like in Genesis, is that sometimes these names don't literally mean what the text says they mean, but they sound like that. Uh, so it's called a popular et etymology. 
And the word kavod is the root here. I've got it on this screen. As you look down, here's the name right here in Hebrew. And then I put a hyphen there to separate the prefix from the root word itself. The root word is kavod. It's the word we just saw, meaning glory or something heavy or something important. And it has the idea of raising a question. And it could mean where is glory. That that I prefix is a little ambiguous, but it could mean where is glory. In other words, where did the glory go? So every time you would name mention the name of this boy, you're reminded that the glory is gone. The glory of Israel is gone. The glory of God is gone. We've lost God. He's no longer with us. Or it, it could be no glory or nothing of glory. But nobody knows exactly what that prefix uh, means semantically, but she interprets it to refer to the departure or the exit of the ark. Now notice what she says in two places here. She names the child Ichabod saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of the Lord has been captured and because of her father-in-law who died and her husband who died. And then it's repeated in verse 22. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So twice it stayed. Whenever the Holy Spirit put something in the scripture twice, we know we need to pay attention to that. That's the significance of his name. And when she uses this word departed, that's also a significant word. It's the Hebrew word galah, which means to go into exile. That's how it's used when you get into the prophets later on and you get into uh, like Amos Amos uses it to refer to the exile of Israel when the uh, Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and uh, took the Israelites into captivity. This is the exile. And so this is a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen to Israel, that the glory is going to depart again. This is described in Ezekiel, that the Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the uh, the Holy of Holies and the, and the inner temple and go out to the east gate, then cross the Kidron Valley, go up the Mount of Olives, and then ascend to heaven. This is the same path, basically, the Lord Jesus Christ took when he ascended to heaven. He crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples, went up the Mount of Olives, and then ascended to heaven. So it's, it, this indicates, this Ichabod indicates the departure of the glory of God. God is now going into exile from Egypt. Now the significance of this is not lost on, on Israel. It's referred to twice later on in the Old Testament. And just what I want to remind you is to, that when we study Scripture, I try to point out how these events are used later on in Scripture. They're not just isolated stories. God didn't just reveal this little incident to us because it's a, it's a nice story and it, it's somewhat related to what goes on in Samuel. But this has significance later on in Israel's history. I want you to turn with me to, uh, to Psalms, Psalms 78. So we're going to turn over to Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is a psalm, it's called a contemplation of Asaph. There's a collection of psalms that are written by Asaph. There's a lot of debate as to exactly when these were written, whether it was earlier around the time of David or whether it was later after the separation of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. But the purpose of this psalm is to emphasize God's faithfulness to Israel even when they're unfaithful. And that's a great principle for us to understand is that many times we are disobedient, we're unfaithful to God, but God is always faithful to us. He's always faithful to his word, and he's always faithful to do and to deal with us on the basis of his word. So remember, there's this contrast here in Psalm 78 between Israel's faithlessness and God's faithfulness. And there are two historic examples that are used by Asaph to remind his readers of God's faithfulness. The first is the unfaithfulness of the Exodus generation. 
As they came out of Egypt, they continued to gripe and complain about God and about his provisions and to rebel against God and to rebel against Aaron and to rebel against Moses. And so there's the contrast between how unfaithful they were in the wilderness, yet God remained faithful to them and to his word. God is ultimately it's his faithfulness to his word and to his covenant. And then the second example comes from God's uh, uh, Israel's faithlessness during this time at the end of the period of Judges, yet God's faithfulness to his covenant to deal with his people in grace. And look at verse 57. This is obviously a long psalm. In verse 57, or verse 56, to set the context, they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. That summarizes the period of the Judges. They turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. Who were their fathers? Their fathers were the wilderness generation. So he's talking about the generation at the time of Samuel and Eli and says they, they've turned aside uh, and been unfaithful like their fathers. They turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. So this is describing their complete apostasy. They, they built the high places to sacrifice to the uh, fertility gods, the gods of the Canaanites, the uh, Ashtoreth and the Baalim. And it says they provoked him... Um, he provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. So they've completely given themselves over to idolatry. And then verse 59, when God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So that what happened? He forsook the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is describing 1 Samuel chapter 4. God leaves the tabernacle at Shiloh and he will never return never comes back to Shiloh, shuts down the worship there. In fact, the study of what happens to the tabernacle is somewhat obscure at this point. What we find in about 40 years is that there's a, an altar that's set up at, at Gibeah, that there seems to be a tabernacle there, but the ark is at, um, uh, is down in Jerusalem, and then it's moved into near Jerusalem, then it's moved in Jerusalem. So... Uh, it, it just there, there's the, and it re- reflects the fragmentation of the spirituality of Israel at this time. So he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity, and his glory. Guess what that word is? Kavad. His glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword. So they've come under divine discipline, the fourth cycle of discipline described in Leviticus chapter 26, and they are under military dominion for the next 20 years. And he's, and he, God, it says, is furious with his inheritance. In verse 63, the fire consumed their young men, their maidens were not given in marriage. They are so depressed. They're so discouraged by the fact that they have lost God and they've had a number of young men that have died, but they're so distressed that that society almost breaks down. The normal social functions almost completely break down in the nation because of what has happened with the capture of the ark. Uh, Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Think about that. Why wouldn't they lament and grieve over the deaths of their husbands? Because they're already in such grief, according to this description, from the loss of God and the complete breakdown of their society and their their culture. So this is one example where First Samuel 4 is mentioned. There's another one in Jeremiah. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, what's happening in Jeremiah's time? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and he is at the time of the exile. He begins before the defeat of of Judah by the uh, Babylonians, and he is announcing the coming judgment that God is going to bring on Judah for their apostasy, for their idolatry, for their disobedience, for their all, all of their failures. And in verse 12, he's going to give us a reference to Shiloh. But let's just look at the context a little bit. Remember how important it is to look at context. 
So at the beginning of chapter 7, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So this is God speaking to Jeremiah. And he's told us in verse 2 to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all of Judah, and enter these gates to worship the Lord. Now, by this time, what's happened in their apostasy that, that the, the Jews are not paying any attention to God's word at all. Isaiah warned them that this day was going to come, that the southern kingdom was going to be defeated and destroyed. Isaiah warned them that the Babylonians, that Nebuchadnezzar was the one who was going to come and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. This had been anticipated. Other prophets had announced this uh, time and time again. But the people, the religious leaders, have so turned their back on God that they're not listening, and they think that the temple, which is their glory, this is Solomon's temple, the first temple, is so glorious and so wonderful that it can't be destroyed. They're just they're just totally given over to arrogance, thinking that God can't destroy us, and they're, they're just in this horrible place of rebellion. Yet uh, Jeremiah's message to them Verse 3, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. The only way they can stay there is if they turn back to the Lord. But then God goes on to say, don't trust in these lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, or these. See, that's what they're saying. The temple of the Lord can't be destroyed. So they go on, and in the next few verses, Jeremiah just continues to give them an indictment of how everybody is living for themselves. They're oppressing the, the uh, aliens that are coming in and living in Israel, the fatherless, the widow. This isn't talking about government oppression. This is talking about the fact that on the part of the individuals, this isn't an indictment of the government. It's an indictment of the people. The government reflects that, but the people are not being caring of the poor, of the widows, and of the orphans. Everybody's just so concerned with their own lives and their own agendas. You, what you find in liberal theology is that uh, they, they and, and especially under the influence of Marxism, and you find this in various forms of liberation theology, is the idea that this is all an attack on government and see the role of the government primarily is to take care of the widows and the orphans, etc. But when you study the Mosaic Law, it's the responsibility of the individuals to do this. It's always placed on individual responsibility as a, a manifestation of that the first divine institution we've studied many times on individual responsibility. God places the responsibility on the individuals, on the families, to take care of their own, and there's only a small amount of responsibility in the Mosaic Law given to the government. Only one tithe of the of the three was to provide a a a, a safety net for the widows and orphans. So there's this indictment of the people. They've all just turned their backs on the poor and on the on the widows and on the orphans. And that's part of the, part of the indictment. And then look down at verse 11. As he reaches the end of his indictment, Jeremiah says, Has this house, which is called by my name, God is speaking here, this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. See what they're doing. In the ancient world, temples were used as the um, Federal Reserve Bank. This was the place where people stored their money because who's going to attack a temple? Who's going to go in and rob a temple under the eyes of a god, whoever it was, because that was considered the safest place around? So that's where they stored the money. Well, they're using the money. Uh, they're not using it for what God intended it to do. Uh, they're using it for their own purposes. So it's become a, a, a system of thievery and a system of robbery and the hypertaxation. All this is covered in the book of Kings. And then God says, so you think I won't destroy the temple? Let me give you a little historical evidence that I will destroy my dwelling place. And in verse 12, he says, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh. 
You don't think I'll destroy this temple? Just take a, take a walk about 20 miles north of Jerusalem to Shiloh, and you will see the destruction that's there. I've already destroyed my dwelling place among you once. I can do it again. So go to my place in Shiloh where I set my name at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early in speaking, but you did not hear and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name and in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. See, this is how this is connected. God is using Shiloh as an example that he does enter into human history and he does bring judgment to those who have disobeyed him, that they can go on and on and on. God will extend grace and extend grace and extend grace before judgment. But eventually, the long-suffering of God is going to bring judgment. It happens individually. God does not always whack us every time we disobey him. God will give us enough rope to hang ourselves. And we may go years and years and years in uh, destructive, sinful patterns. And then finally God says, you just keep excusing it. You keep rationalizing it. We're going to have to deal with it in divine discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And that's a sign that we are part of God's royal family, according to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. So this is the example. It's going to come back again. Just turn over a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 6. This is a similar scenario. God is again reminding them that he's going to destroy the temple, and he lays out the indictment in the first five verses that they've uh, continued in their evil, they've continued in idolatry, they have continued to disobey him, and God is now going to announce his judgment that he will make this house, that is the temple of Solomon, This house, like Shiloh, he will completely destroy it and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Now, what do you think the response was when he said that? I ought to remind you of several times in the Gospels when Jesus makes certain statements about who he is, about his mission. What happens? Jesus says that he is... uh, he says, before Abraham was, I am. A clear statement that, uh, of divine, uh, that, he's, that he's deity using the divine name Yahweh or I am. And he indicates that. And what did the Pharisees do? Did they say, well, let's go back and have a theological discussion about this? Is that what they did? They reached down to stone him. See, what happens when the prophets proclaim the truth of God's word, when Christians stand against the tide of a degenerate pagan culture, how do people respond? In hostility and anger. This is exactly what happens in verse 7. After Jeremiah announces that God has said he's going to destroy the temple, so the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord, And when he made an end of speaking, what do they say? End of verse 8. You shall surely die. You've gone too far now. We're going to kill you. And the rulers come out and rescue Jeremiah at this point, so that doesn't happen, unlike Stephen later on in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was making the same point again and again and again. You have turned your back on God, and you have killed God's prophets. And the Pharisees and Sadducees got so mad at him, they picked up rocks and they stoned him to death in Acts 7. So God does bring judgment, but he has to bring this judgment on Israel, has to take them through this crucible in order to cleanse the priesthood of sin, in order to cleanse the nation of sin before he's going to start rebuilding the nation. And we're going to see this amusing episode that takes place starting in the next chapter of how the people are just so distraught because uh, God has been captured. God has been captured and God's been taken away. 
And God is going to show that he's perfectly capable of taking care of himself. Thank you very much. He doesn't need any help from anybody else, and it is extremely amusing. So we'll cover that next Tuesday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study your word, to come to a little better understanding of who you are, because it shows us that you are not always one to operate as we might predict or might think. You operate outside of that box because you operate on the basis of, of infinite knowledge, and you know exactly what is necessary in order to bring about your desired goals and to cleanse from sin, to discipline for sin. And, Father, it shows us that, that you have a specific purpose in all of the things that you've done in history. It's remarkable to see how these different events uh, connect together. And, Father, we know that the same is true in, individually in our spiritual lives, that you warn us, that you entice us, you draw us to try to get to get into your word, to study your word, to walk in the light, to walk according to your truth. And again and again, we see people who just turn their back upon the word and are not interested. And as a result of that, judgment sometimes comes. And it may not be far away as far as our country is concerned. Father, as believers, we need to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray that we might have the courage and the spiritual fortitude to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.